I'm Frederick Gerten, and I'm the filmmaker. And I'm Leilani Farha, and I'm the advocate. And this is Pushback Talks, the summer series 2022. So Leilani, first of all, wind back a few weeks. There was a showing of Push, the film, in the European Parliament. And you were presenting the work you've been on for a long time now, more than a year, working, working, working. The shift, human rights directives. Yes. How was it? How was it? Tell me. It was fantastic. You know, it's hard to host a screening of a film and launch what is, in fact, looks like a report, you know, in Parliament. We know this because we've tried this before and there was tons of interest. We did a panel afterward to talk about the shift directives and the film and what's happening in Europe. It was great. It was live streamed. I think there were maybe over 50 people in the room and more than 50 people online. So it was really, it was good. And I, I know the film was going out with subtitles in many versions. That we were asked to deliver many subtitle versions, exactly. which we have, of course, of the film. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and you know, it's amazing. The film came out, of course, in 2019, but the relevance, it's more relevant now in some ways. People are catching up to the film, which is interesting, right? And the directives, there was a, a feeling, I was so pleased, there was a feeling that people were waiting for this. Solutions, what can governments do to stop this in its tracks, this financialization of housing? So, and and really embracing the human rights framework, it's super cool. We're in a different, it's a different landscape. I think what you are doing and, and your peeps are, are doing, Leilani, is really cool. And I think because you are delivering language and tools to, also for politicians, ambitious politicians and activists and others to be able to say, okay, hey, what do you say about this? Shouldn't we agree on having this as a platform? And And it will be easier for people to move it. And then also... Because the industry will always come with their their um, propaganda language that will always sound really nice, but then you can check their language with your directives, and then they will say, "Oh, doesn't fit." Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I've already been approached um, by some people who are working with investors of different types in the housing. Uh, area market and trying to figure out how they can use the directives in their relations with investors. So this is very cool. And I always anticipated the directives would be like a provocation to provoke a conversation, to provoke a different way of thinking to, you know, and I think that's the effect they're having already. And this is very early days. I haven't even really rolled them out in any significant way yet. And our dear listeners of Pushback Talks, uh, this autumn, coming up, fall coming up. Well, let, let, don't think about now we're going to enjoy the summer. But anyway, there will be a time when the summer is not more. And then we will dive deeper into uh, these directives to really understand what Leilani and her team has been shaping. And and so we'll be looking forward to that. But now, is, as this is a summer series, we try to bring out interesting stuff from what we've done during the year. And we're actually going to start with China, because we did an episode called Can the Communist Party in China Save Capitalism? 
I, I, I like the title that the, because it, I mean China is you know it's this communist party but it's also a very brutal raw capitalistic society I mean it's even raw and more brutal than let's say the the Nordic social democratic societies or, or France or Germany or others it's uh, workers are much more under pressure in China than in many other countries yeah aggressive aggressive kind of very unique aggressive kind of capitalism isn't it yeah but we looked into a very special company mm -hmm. Leilani Evergrande yeah what is Evergrande Evergrande is a is was what's the status of Evergrande a huge company with huge real estate holdings particularly residential real estate holdings that found themselves in a huge amount of debt mega debt and they weren't going to be able to pay off this debt. They were looking at bankruptcy, putting a lot of people in very terrible circumstances, people who had purchased units that hadn't even been built yet. And so sitting there empty handed, both no money and no home. Um, a lot of people in China use real estate as a way to secure their money. Mm. And Evergrande is part of that. So we hooked up with... A very knowledgeable man, Dexter Roberts, who is the former bureau chief of an Asia news editor for Bloomberg. And he's just also released a book about the Chinese capitalism. So, of course, we, we asked him about the relation, I mean, the, the, the role of real estate in the Chinese economy today. Well, uh, I mean, one of the first things that you need to understand about the Chinese economy is the degree to which it is reliant on real estate to drive economic growth. Uh, most estimates put about uh, a third of the economy in some way being related to the property sector. Um, and the other thing to know about uh, China's economy and, and, and also the property sector is it's very, very indebted. They've built up huge amounts of debt from years, more than a decade of high levels of investment, and they're starting to get very worried about this. So uh, yeah, the property sector is the most indebted part of the economy, and the government has decided that that's not good for long-term growth. Can I just stop you there, because I'm already a bit mind blown. Did you notice, Leilani, that one third of the Chinese economy is real estate? I did. I, I, I wrote it down. We know China from producing tons of stuff that we consume. Uh, but this is uh, real estate is, of course, for internal uh, use in some way. So, Dexter, this is the this is in and what does it mean that this big part of the Chinese economy is real estate? Well, uh, from China's perspective, um, it means that uh, there's a great a great degree of instability in the economy. Um, they also not only do they rely a lot of, on real estate, but real estate is. Uh, uh, they, they, they build more real estate than they actually need. So we have a, an issue with upwards of 20% of apartments, for example, being vacant in China. Um, there is, most people do own their, do have their own homes, but there's also a lot more that actually aren't even filled yet. And this, this is a problem. So the Chinese housing crisis is a backward one. There is, or we, are we reading some numbers? I don't know how to check them, but that, between 60 and 90 million empty apartments in China? It sounds insane. Yeah, it's a, it's a very, very large number. Um, the other thing to keep in mind is that 
because your average Chinese person doesn't have a lot of uh, investment opportunities, uh, the, the capital accounts in the economy are closed, there's not a lot of investment elsewhere, uh, a full, I think it's 90% of household wealth is put into their is put into housing. So um, a lot of people have more than one apartment. Um, and uh, this has been fine because real estate values have gone up for years and years. As long as they keep going up, everybody's happy. The Chinese government's happy because the economy keeps growing. And the Chinese people are happy because their, uh, their savings keep going up. And that, mm. that, that, the, the fear is that that will change. We, we Leila, have been talking about capitalism on steroids. Steroids when we talk about the housing sector and the real estate sector in in the Western economies. But this sounds like it's uh, almost some extra strong steroids. The the Chinese uh, economy, Leilani. Mm. It does sound like it's on steroids. As does I mean, I, it makes me think about the inequality that must exist in China because I know that. Huge portions of the population are living in deplorable housing conditions in what I think are called villages, like urban villages. And obviously those households can't afford to invest in real estate or can't afford to purchase uh, fancy homes in these uh, skyscrapers. So if you've got 60 to 90 million vacant homes, that suggests that there's some segment of the population that can invest and... um, or that there's overproduction f- at the wrong level. In other words, things are being produced that actually don't meet the need of people at the lower end of the economic spectrum. That's Yeah, I mean, that's absolutely true. I, the average housing price uh, in, in, as a multiple of, of, how, of annual household income in Beijing and Shanghai is about 25. So 25 times uh, what they would earn in, earn in a year to buy, to uh for for an apartment and that compares to i think it's something like eight times in london and maybe seven times in new york which are cities that obviously aren't known for cheap prices so we're talking about extremely expensive apartments in the cities as you say a very large portion of the population is in substandard housing we have uh the world's largest internal migrant population of almost 300 million people and they for a variety of historical reasons and reasons today uh, are really treated as second-class citizens. And as you point out, yes, there's a lot of housing out there and and it's not accessible to them in almost all cases. Mm. But then the crisis right now is not about these 300 million um, migrant workers in in China. It's about the middle class who are sitting with their investments and about to lose them. And then also in the bigger part of the, the business community and, and the government, I guess, if ever, ever grand can't pay their bills. It must be... That's a- absolutely true, yeah. So, I mean, Evergrande, I, probably, I think by most estimates, is China's second largest real estate company. As you said, they have you know, hundreds of projects around the country that are half, um, half built. Um, the way it works in China is they take the... They take the payment up front. So believe it or not, you'll you'll buy an apartment that's not going to actually be built for the next three years. So you have, you know, huge numbers of Chinese people that have paid for apartments that don't have them yet that are now afraid that if Evergrande goes bust, they'll never get them. Uh, Evergrande is, you know, owes $300 billion. Uh, a, a much smaller portion of that, about $20 billion, is to overseas creditors. So the real challenge 
the people that are really stand to lose are, are the Chinese people if Evergrande uh, w uh, does go bust. $300 billion. I, I stop having any feeling of how much money that is, but I guess it's a lot. It's a lot. <laughs> oh, very yeah. much so. And I think of that, <laughs> something like $40 billion is foreign, foreign investment. I don't know who exactly. I had heard that BlackRock, for example, one of our friends, friends on this show, so-called friends on the, our show, uh, big private equity uh, firm, uh, was one of the foreign investors, but there must be many more at $40, $40 billion is a lot of money. Yeah, I think it's uh, yeah, it is. It's it's maybe maybe twenty billion, but it's it's a lot of money. And I think BlackRock is one, and some of the other sort of the usual suspects. I think a lot of the um, big uh, finance houses, global finance houses that are involved in property, are invested in China. Um, so I mean, that's why we saw a global sell-off on markets, um, in part because of that exposure by big uh, multinationals. But even more so, I would say the sell-off was because of a, of the very real fear that uh, if Evergrande went bust and the larger real estate real estate sector, and it's not just Evergrande. Um, Started, started seeing more and more bankruptcies, that would hit the Chinese economy. Once the Chinese economy has a major downturn, that has a real global impact beyond just these uh, international uh, you know, financial companies. So sh should we be worried or how, how do you see it? So, I mean, actually the latest news, I think on Friday evening, uh, Evergrande announced through a filing to the Hong Kong Stock Exchange where they're listed that they, uh, were in fear that they were basically afraid they weren't going to they were going to default. Um, and uh, what happened very quickly was the Guangdong government, which is the provincial government where Evergrande is based down in the south of the country near Hong Kong, uh, immediately issued a statement saying we are in consultation with Evergrande and we're going to try to um, work with them on risk and, and make sure operations continue as normal. So this just uh, is a reminder of the degree to which the Chinese government, both the provincial government and and the central government in Beijing, is worried about the fate of Evergrande and the fate of the larger real estate sector. So I think that the short answer is we don't need to worry yet. China has so much riding on uh, the continued growth of the real estate sector uh, that they are they're not going to let such a high profile company implode in a way that would hurt the Chinese economy uh, very, very badly. I'm, I'm interested in the government's response to this Evergrande situation because, you know, I, I don't know that much about China. I come, I read the news like anyone else, and I keep seeing references to the president's commitment to a common prosperity and even a slogan that houses are for living in, not for speculation. Um, so I'm wondering, I think those are interesting concepts there, the idea of common prosperity um, and the idea that houses aren't for speculation. I mean, those are things that actually resonate with me as a human rights lawyer uh, and advocate. Um, has this translated into anything from the government side in terms of how they're dealing with Evergrande? Well, I would say that, I mean, there's really two major reasons why they, they're trying to solve the issues of Evergrande. And one is the one I already mentioned, which is the excessive debt levels, which potentially is destabilizing for the whole economy, um, particularly if, if these big companies like Evergrande start going bankrupt. Uh, but the other one is the one you just you just pointed to, which is what, what Xi Jinping does indeed call common prosperity. And this, uh, which in its simplest form is an effort to try to make the economy fairer and deal with some of these extremes of 
of in inequality that are now uh, very, very much alive and, and becoming more severe in the Chinese economy. Housing um, is uh, one of what the Chinese government likes to refer to as the three big mountains. And these three big mountains is housing, uh, education costs, and also healthcare costs. And they are seen, and, and, and indeed the government is right, as contributing to these issues, these, the problem with inequality. So I think, uh, yes, I mean, I think there is a, uh, an equally important motivation by Beijing, which is to try to uh, bring down housing prices and uh, uh, along with this, this very real debt issue. Hmm. Because I, from, I, I'm starting to think about the parallels to, I mean, the, the great financial crisis here in 2008. In, in, and, you, I mean, where you're sitting with a lot of normal people investing, buying one or two or three apartments, putting their savings there. And then, you, of course, you have this big, big scale, big operators that are... The, the ones who can make a deal with the government when there, there is a crisis, which, I mean, the American government and many governments around the world helped their big banks and financial institutions to to get out of it in some ways. But they didn't really help the small people when they when and the ordinary people when when so in the US, like 30 million people lost their homes. Uh, do you think this is something that can happen in China also? Because if if the if the value drops of of the housing market, it will mean a lot for those ordinary people who had invested. I think there's a the the, the Chinese government uh, is facing this great conundrum because, it, really, since the global financial crisis in two thousand and nine, they have moved to this economic model, which is primarily driven by greater and greater investment, some forty five percent of of GDP. And a very large portion of that, maybe a third of that, is real estate investment. So the economy rises and falls with the real estate market, and they know that. So uh, they do want to bring down prices. They realize that this growing inequality, wealth inequality, is potentially socially destabilizing. Uh, people are very upset about it. Um, uh, but they also uh, yeah, are in this very difficult situation. Uh, if they... Uh, uh, crack down too hard on real estate and try to bring down prices too much, it's going to hurt the overall economy. That will hurt the standing of the, the leadership, the Chinese Communist Party. And of course, that will hurt the people as well. So they want to bring down prices. They want to deleverage and bring down debt. But on the other hand, if they, if they do it too quickly, they're going, to, they're going to actually hurt the economy and hurt the people as well. Which is the same. I mean, in, I mean, in my own country, Sweden, uh, we have the highest debt per, 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 per person in 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 housing costs, for example. So I mean, everybody knows that this is not a sound situation, and that at some moment, if the if the prices go down, a lot of normal people will will lose a lot. So there is a, a lot of stress connected to this, and of course, that's um, so the governments have. It's hard for them to move. Yes, and I, one other thing I would just add is 
One of the glaring policy steps that they should have taken years ago, and they've been talking about over a decade, is to institute a property tax. Um, and they talk about, you know, housing is for living and not for speculation. Well, one way to fix that in the, in the real situation in China is to put a property tax on so, so people decide this isn't such a great speculative investment. Um, but they don't want to do that. I mean, they, 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 they want to do that, but they, they've been res there's been great resistance. And part of it is probably average people who, don't, who aren't used to paying a property tax. But even more so, I would say it's elite Chinese, many of them government officials themselves, who own, in some cases, you know, it's not uncommon for a government official to have 15 different apartments in cities around the country. And not only do they not want to pay tax on that, they also don't want the, the, that, that fact exposed publicly that they, that they have so much wealth in housing. So uh, the government's been talking about it forever. Xi Jinping, the general secretary of the, of, of, of the Communist Party, just again mentioned uh, the, that China should move forward on a property tax. But until today, it's really just two pilot programs in the cities of Shanghai and a big western city of Chongqing. Um, and they, uh, there's been signs recently that they're, that they're sort of backpedaling on that, on that plan to institute a property tax. Yeah, I read that, they're, that they were contemplating this property tax, and I, I was surprised. What? So much property there and no property taxes? It's pretty wild. Um, but one of the things I don't understand, Dexter, or maybe you can um, help elucidate, um, isn't it the case that the government themselves contributed to Evergrande's woes? I mean, didn't they make... So, you know, I come at this as a human rights lawyer. You've got to remember that. But I, I recall reading that um, money became more expensive and is more expensive now in China than it was. In other words, it was more expensive to borrow. And that the government was looking at regulations and maybe has passed them, I don't know, to make it more difficult to borrow. In other words, if you haven't paid off your debt, you're not going to be able to borrow, for example, is one of the regs that I had heard was being discussed. So is it the case that they kind of brought Evergrande to their knees and, and now are in the position of trying to figure out, okay, we brought them to their knees, but we also believe in common prosperity and we need to save people from economic ruin? Is, am I reading that right? Yeah, no, uh, you are. I, the, you know, the situation they're facing today with Evergrande almost bankrupt and many other property developers very much is of their own making. They, I think it was last summer, uh, a year ago this summer, uh, they instituted tight new restrictions on, on credit. And as you say, they made it much more difficult to borrow if you were already had already had high debt levels. And this isn't they 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 in their policies they often like to number things. This is actually another uh, trio. They call it the three red lines. And the three red lines was a policy instituted to try to deal with uh, the overheated property sector. And it was very much in, you know very much a government policy, and it very much brought China's real estate sector to where it is today. Uh, and yes, now they they uh, you know. This year, property prices are going to still grow, I think just barely, maybe by a couple percentage points after probably twice that, at least the previous year in 2020. Next year, the first half, most uh, people that watch the property market are expecting them to fall. And so uh, on the one hand, 
this meets the goal of the Chinese government to try to bring down some of the frothiness and reduce the, the cost that your average Chinese has to pay to buy a place. But on the other hand, um, again, it has real economic implications. So they're really between, you know, between the proverbial rock and the hard place. They want to cool this down. They know long term that the leverage the, the, uh, in the economy is not sustainable. Uh, and the real estate market, again, is the most leveraged part of all industries in China. But uh, on the other hand, they don't want to see the economy really slow. And they particularly, by the way, don't want to see it slow in the run up to one of their very most important uh, political meetings, which is the every, every five year party Congress of the Communist Party, which happens next fall. That one's particularly important because Xi Jinping has made it very clear that he's going to break with precedent and stay on as leader of China for more than a, the, the typical 10 years. So. They do not want the economy to tank before next October. <laughs> okay, let's see what I happens. Not. I mean, it's, it's. I mean, China has always been a mystery. Maybe not as much for you as for us, but <laughs> because you've been there for for so many years. But I mean, it, it's an extreme radical capitalism in some way, and or in many ways. Um, and then you have the Communist Party and the state. So, I mean, we also in the West have a big problem with a, an extreme capitalism that is creating these big divides in our societies. It's, I mean, the same thing that they are in some ways are also up against right now. But do you think that this f fact that there is a very strong state that can just do what they want, can, can they solve things better in China? Can they get out of this? They can make big dramatic moves and they can order, you know, the banking system is almost 100% state owned. They can tell banks, uh, you know, we don't want these property companies to default. Actually, we decided that the deleveraging push has gone too far. Loosen up the spigots and lend them more money. So they have these abilities that we certainly don't have in, uh, in, other, in many other countries around the world. Um, Uh, but they, uh, but but I think long term it doesn't solve this problem again of of this conundrum of uh, becoming uh, the economy becoming so reliant on investment, which has to do with the fact that it's st so state run and um, and you know trying to trying to create a more sustainable. They want a more household consumption driven economy. So uh, most of the economy is again driven by investment, as I said, a lot of that through lending by state banks. Um, and on the other hand, uh, the households don't typically have enough money, in part because of the vast inequalities, wealth and income inequalities. So you've got a large proportion of the people, um, as the Premier Li Keqiang said last year, famously or infamously, they have 600 million people uh, that live on a uh, thousand renminbi a month, which is about less than $160 a month. So they have a very large number of poor people as well. Um, so that's, uh, so I, I'm not sure I'm answering your question, but I, I, I think that they can, they, can, they can take moves, they can make dramatic moves, for example, to save a company like Evergrande, but can they actually deal with these longer, longer term issues and imbalances in the economy? It, that's not mm. so clear. Yeah. Dexter, I've seen, I've seen some documentaries and images of these kind of new built ghost cities around China. And I guess that Evergrande is a part of that, building those cities. Have Absolutely. you been to any of these places? I have, yeah. Um, I've been to a number of them. Um, How uh, is it? In, 
So it's very strange. So the one I went up to in Inner Mongolia, which is north of Beijing, uh, which is one of the more famous ones, um, they, uh, the, the only people they could convince to live there were uh, local government officials. So, uh, or uh, they thought so, but a lot of the local government officials refused to move there. So a very interesting experience you would see. The, the local, they moved the city government there. They moved all the functions of the city government. And at the end of the day, and I was there at the end of the day, these big buses pull up outside the, the, the local courthouse and in the local government offices, and all the, the local officials get in them and get on their buses to go back to the, the city where they actually live, which is the old city, um, uh, which is a, it's quite a sight. And all the buses drive out, and then the city is really a ghost town for the night. The interesting thing is, so as I said, I mean, some government officials, some wealthy people will have maybe a dozen apartments around the country. They want a couple in Beijing, a couple in Shanghai, one back in their hometown in the province. So, so you, you have a situation where there's a lot of vacant apartments, obviously, as we we're discussing. Um, that doesn't necessarily matter if the people, if, if housing prices keep going up. They're seen as a repository of wealth for whomever owns them. And... As long as the local governments continue to, in some cases, seize land from local farmers and redevelop it and make money, and by the way, as I said a moment ago, uh, help pay the local, they, they do they, that money that they get from housing development also goes towards important things like paying local pensions, building schools, and so on. As long as that continues in this merry-go-round, everything's fine, and so. What the Chinese, I mean, it gets back to what the Chinese government is trying to do right now, which is deflate that leverage bubble and try to create an economy that long-term is more sustainable, more reliant on spending power of the people and less on investment, less on real estate. Um, that's where it becomes a problem because they want, to, they want to deflate the property values to a degree, become more affordable. Uh, they want to wean the economy and, and off to a degree off its reliance on ever more uh, building. Uh, but at the same time, they can't go too far or they'll, they'll actually you know, derail the economy and people will see the values that they put into these apartments uh, lost overnight. In my film Push, where Leilani is featured, uh, we meet with a leading sociologist, uh, Saskia Sassen, in London. And she talks about, I mean, why are there's all these empty buildings also in New York, you know, empty apartments. And she explains that it's there are assets in a financial game. So it doesn't really matter if somebody lives there or not. But of course, how long can this run, you know, with, with a lot of empty assets? I mean, at some point, if you see a big city out in, in, in the Chinese desert and nobody lives there, is that asset still worth yeah. something? I mean, it's a bit strange. I think it, it makes my head go a bit fuzzy. I can't, you know, one can imagine the value of an empty condo building in the heart of Manhattan. But, I mean, I've been to similar ghost areas in Egypt, for example, uh, where they are just simply depositories for cash, investment, pen it's personal pension fund, that kind of thing. And it's in the middle of the desert. Nothing there. No vibrancy, no city, nothing to give it value beyond the land that it's uh, on which it sits. It's just it's a it's a bit mind boggling to me. It's like such a stark representation of of the capitalism that we're living with right now. And that, as Frederick said, that governments have allowed, have invited in, allowed this to happen. It's I, I agree. Yeah, it's, it's, it is astonishing. And the place I just mentioned in Inner Mongolia is in 
really in the middle of nowhere out on this, it's not desert, it's steppe, but there's nothing there. To, there's no reason to have a right. city there. Um, and they have a perfectly fine city already, right. <laughs> which is where people still want to live. Do you think people ever will come and live there? Well, the, um, the hope is that, that they'll fill them up. And I mean, the, the, the example that people bring up is, you know, way back decades ago, they started to build you know, a vast new city across the river in Shanghai called Pudong. And uh, people said, this is a white elephant. They're crazy. And now it's a vibrant, you know, new, very important part of one of the most important, vibrant cities in China. But that was right next door to Shanghai with, his, you know, centuries of, of, of history as a vibrant city and ec economically growing. Um, and this is something different, I think, now. The other thing that is a real worry for China is if you look at the getting into the economics of it, if you look at the productivity of the economy, it's come down dramatically. So basically that means that, that for every dollar that they put in, whether it's lent by a state bank and often put into building a new apartment block, which might be empty, they're getting, you know, to use the cliche, less bang for their buck. So the GDP uh, effect of, or the, the amount of GDP they get out of the investment keeps going down. And they, they know that. So 10 years ago, they could loan a certain amount of money and the economy would grow by a certain amount. Now, that's not the case anymore. They need to loan you know, several times as much money just to get the economy to, 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 to basically remain stable and not slow. And that's because of you know, this declining return on investments. That's because ultimately they've built too many things that aren't really economically um, mm -hmm. uh, productive. And so, uh, so this, is, this is a real concern of the government. And they're aware of this in China, but they haven't figured out a, a solution to so it. So extreme capitalism killed communism. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or whatever it is. <laughs> I don't. I don't want to. I don't. I'm not too happy with labels, but I mean, it's. But it's mm. a. It's. It's a bit weird. So to to sum up this, I mean, it's been amazing to have you here with all mm -hmm. your knowledge, and and I hope a lot of people will read your book, The Myth of the Chinese Capitalism, because I think you're touching upon a lot of these things here. Uh, so where, where where shall we see China go now? The, the coming the coming years. I think there were hopeful signs in this push for common prosperity and this, you know, this very openly stated awareness by the leadership that the growing inequality is a problem. But if we look at sort of the policies that they've taken, I mean, bringing down the real estate sector is important and needed. It's just very difficult. Uh, so that's a good thing. But as I said earlier, you know, despite its communist roots, they are very cautious about actually doing and taking policies that would clearly redistribute wealth. Uh, Xi Jinping, in a recent speech, warned of the dangers of what he called welfareism. So he's talking about common <laughs> prosperity. He's also saying welfareism, just, just you know, the worst, I mean, the, the absolute stereotype of, 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 of a capitalist saying, you know, the dangers of welfareism and uh, providing so much support that people don't want to work. And he actually said this in a speech. Wow. Um, so, I, so I think there's a real... Uh, uh, there's a miss. There's a there's a gap between some of the rhetoric we hear from them mm -hmm. and their actual mm -hmm. policies. And then one other thing, I just say quickly, uh, which we haven't talked about, but which is a huge issue, is the aging population. You know, the fact that they, um, uh, if the popu you know, the workforce is shrinking. Uh, there's huge new costs for families and local governments to pay for elderly people. 
And this is going to be a big economic drag as well. And this is something that um, is really, a, a prop, most, most demographers think it's going to be impossible for China to reverse this trend, which is a rapidly aging population at a, at a, at a, at a point when China's not a very wealthy country what other people have referred to as getting old before it gets rich. Um, and this is something that's going to be a big drag on the economy. And frankly, it makes things like dealing with the real estate sector even more complicated going forward. It's so interesting. Because, I mean, when you, the debate and the view on China, I mean, in the political debate in Sweden or the US or wherever, it's like we should, the Chinese are coming is basically what the, the signal is in the media. But you're actually describing um, a weaker Struggle. China uh, that are a little struck, like stuck with its own huge mm -hmm. problems. Absolutely. I mean, I've been a skeptic on this, this thing that investment banks, global investment banks have repeated like a mantra about how China is, you know, is, is poised within a decade to overtake the U.S. as the world's largest GDP. There's plenty of reasons to think that might actually never happen because of these issues, these core challenges they face. Even if China does exceed the U.S., it's also possible that they, that this, uh, and that, that it might fall back in terms of GDP. And, and finally, the third point, <laughs> You know, so what if the GDP exceeds the U.S.? They have these huge problems with inequality, with people. They, you know, they announced that they solved the problem of extreme poverty, which perhaps they have. Uh, they've done a very good job in dealing with some of the extreme poverty issues. But there's still huge numbers, 600 million people at least, according to the premier, that are living uh, in, in near poverty. And so these are all things that uh, could indeed, I think, uh, uh, make China. I, I, I think. I think you're right. I think there's a there's there are fears in this sense that China's poised to take over the world, and I don't think that's what's coming at all. Well, thank you, Dexter. Interesting thought that you think that the Chinese are not going to take over the world because that's why this alarm is going on all the time. It's it's good with perspective and knowledge. What do you say, Lelani? Mm -hmm. Very interesting. I like I like a different perspective. Yeah. And well, this was pushback talks and we will be back soon again every second week so that we will release a new episode also from our summer series. But first of all, I have to share some news with you, Leilani. Oh, please that, do. You know, we have listeners in many countries. This is one of the, the cool things with this podcast because it's a global issue and we have listeners all over the world. But now we have 141 countries. Wow. One for one. Moving up in the world. Yeah, it's cool. I mean, I mean, we still have some way to go before we can kick UN in the butt. But still, we will <laughs> we'll try to. Some of the, the newcomers on the podcast listeners like downloads so is Gibraltar, St. Vincent and the Grenadines, oh. the Seychelles, Bhutan, Iraq, Afghanistan, Bahamas, Botswana. I mean, I could say more, but it's incredible. It's kind of cool. It's very cool. So, you listeners out there, you're all welcome. And in the, in, if you have somebody in the in the country that you don't think listen to this, tell them about the podcast. As you know, there is no commercials going out here, so and we don't have any promotional power. And how big is our budget, Lelani, for this podcast? Zero. Zero dollars. Oh. Well, <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, shit. Yeah. Wait, we're doing it's it true. for free. Remember? We are doing it. And we have a lot of people working with it. 
and nobody really gets paid for this work. That's right. It's a bit crazy. And how, I mean, what are our, our pledge to our friends? It's that we keep going. Well, I, I know. Well, I think maybe our friends should pledge to us. Oh, yes. Because we have. Now you're talking. <laughs> we have something, something called. Oh, the Patreon account. Yeah. We do. How many Patreons do we have now? Over 40? Yeah, around 50. Fantastic. We need more. And that's people who are, are sending some little money every month to us. And for all of you who are, who are in there, you're, we are so grateful, but we need more. So if you have more friends, tell them to come in and support the podcast. Leilani, this was the story about the Chinese capitalism that the Communist Party is going to save. Next week, we're going to dive into a new story. So, hasta la vista, hasta luego, see you soon. <laughs> see you next week. Ciao.